0: So in every company, you'll see something fundamentally new, something that's changing the world in some sense, right? And the changing the world is I think is what gets me excited or the team gets excited saying, okay, here's an opportunity. The founders are trying to build something which might change the world. And here's your opportunity also to be a part of that in the first place. That's a very optimistic way of looking at it. And I believe we have to look at it very, very optimistically before you say no and give that benefit of doubt to the entrepreneur A founder to give a very optimistic story to you. Then you can criticize. And I think we have that mindset all the time. We keep that when we evaluate. Founder, idea, innovation, you know, something new.
1: Hi, wherever you're listening to this, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to Startup Fridays, conversations with accomplished entrepreneurs and VC investors. I'm Hari Arakli, And in this episode, Vinod Shankar, founding managing partner, at Java Capital in Bengaluru talks about his passion for backing deep tech entrepreneurs. Vinod started out as a software engineer, but his insatiable thirst for knowledge has taken him from a software startup to leading marketing for a library chain to angel investing to eventually working at a VC firm before starting one of his own. In this episode, Vinod also talks about why he wants to invest in deep tech and how he identifies entrepreneurs worth backing. So Vinod, uh, thank you so much for this. Con- making time for this conversation. Uh, really appreciate your time. Um, you started your venture uh, from, um, I think, a little bit before COVID really became big or in the middle of COVID. So that, uh, I guess, itself must have been an interesting experience. Um, before we get to that, uh, for a more general audience, if you could give us a, a quick snapshot about your journey from... Electronics Engineer to VC Investor, Uh, and I see that it's been lots of interesting sort of experiences along the way, you can give us a snapshot, we'll go from there.
0: Hey, thanks Hari for uh, having me on the podcast, firstly, I think I've been listening and been a big fan of, you know, what you've been doing and focusing on, especially on Deep Tech, you know, very few people do that and I think appreciate that and, you know, for pushing us to do more, you know, in that way. Uh, About me, as you said, right, started, I call myself a Bangalore boy, uh, studied at Ramaya in Bangalore, electronics and communication, passionate techie, you know, used to edit the newsletter in college on technology and from there joined a startup in J1B Managar or Indranagar called as Imused, and that was my first startup, you know, I think I had a choice between, you know, going to a Wipro or an Infosys versus this, I chose to work in a startup. I think that's where the twist in the tale started, you know, uh, very early in the career. And that startup uh, fortunately got acquired by uh, Sequoia, US and KKR at that time. And and in the first year of my journey, I'm seeing a startup, a bunch of founders and employees, you know, having ESOPs exiting and founders quitting and starting another company. And then you have Sequoia and KKR in the middle of all this, I think, unexpected for... Uh, a twenty-four-year-old to see all this, you know, in the first year of the job. I think that set the uh, motion in place. I feel even to, till date, right? To when it. You said, by
1: the way, two thousand six. I
0: joined in two thousand six, and the acquisition was between my appointment and my <laughs> joining. You know, just in the middle, and it uh, they acquired like about eventually about six, seven companies and packaged it together and made it into Aricent which is the large company. And that journey was interesting for a couple of other reasons also. In a sense, um, uh, my skip level boss there, right, was Rajesh Srivatsa, Even though I didn't interact with him on a day-to-day basis, but Rajesh went on to, uh, uh, you know, start a venture capital firm called Logis, and I used to sit right next to his cabin. You know, I could, I, mean, I was kind of looking, what is he trying to achieve? He's a PhD from IBM, all that. So that kind of also gave me a window into saying, you know, there is this other world called venture capital. I've started seeing, you know, ESOPs and a different kind of wealth creation happening within the company. And I felt, if you be an employee, right, I think you are never going to make it. That was my first thought. And coincidentally, right, um, Talib's book, uh, especially, uh, right, on outliers that he talks about, you know, controllable uh, black swans. And I was reading those kind of books in that phase of my life. That also influenced me, saying, "Look, you have to chase some nonlinearity in life." One, which nobody talks about today, right? But I think that's the story for me. Even then, I didn't know it's nonlinearity. In that sense, you can't do things which can just earn salary. That's what I was thinking. You, know, you can't be an employee forever, and that put me on the journey to think and observe what's happening in the startup space. And I start. I used to follow all the startup news, There'll be a tech crunch in the U.S. or Gizmo. Uh, gadgets uh, in the US, again, you know, and the CES, a lot of these, you know, was part of my time. Also, I was working in mobile telephony, writing codecs, writing, um, you know, uh, processor level stuff, assembly language, hand assembling code to optimize and squeeze every little cycle. And that was like, because the processor not as powerful as today, right? And I luckily had a chance to even work on, you know, neural based algorithms even then today we talk about a lot of AI, right? I mean, we were doing it, but we didn't really, the hype was not there. It was a winter again still for AI. And today I feel all of this is what really is giving me an edge on, you know, what I do today. My ability to understand technology is way better, I feel. And that mix, right, of having written technology code and passion for doing that is uh, is what brings me to this journey, I think, you know, to do deep technology investments today. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, tech alone is not sufficient, I realized from day one. And my second job was another startup uh, called, I joined Just Books, which was getting incubated at NSRCL at IIM Bangalore. But even before I joined them full time as a marketing head, right, I took a franchise of their outlet. I became an SME entrepreneur, if you wish. Mm -hmm. So I ran an outlet in a locality in Bangalore, a library of 10,000 books, you know, and that was a dream, believe me. Having 10,000 books, which you can, if technically not yours, but you can still call it yours, and yeah. to be amidst that was again a great experience, right? Uh, I, I, me and my wife ran it for about seven years. We did another outlet in Basvishnoi Nagar. So my first daughter had a chance to be amongst books all the time. Lucky in that sense, you know. Uh, and and I I was amongst books, meeting authors, talking to people, everything, you know. And that's when the Chetan Bagat wave also was happening. Yeah. And that's a great experience for me to learn uh, how to run an organization, recruit people, manage people, do marketing. I learned business, let me put it that way, right? Business and marketing. So I had technology, now I have business and development for another five years. That journey hurry again, you know, sometimes, you know, non linearity I call, right? It's not necessarily in wealth, is the realization for me. The first realization was non-linearity in the first job in technology, learning. The second realization is not about just creating wealth. Knowledge is another non-linearity. The second job was like a startup job. You know, you were managing everything. You had pay cards. You had to revive the company, you know, a couple of times. And I was very close to working with the founders. That gave me a sense that startup is not easy, first thing. And if you do need to do that, right? You need a little bit of a iron will. To do that, and that five years of journey taught me anything more than that. And funny, funny things happened in that journey also. I would say, right? Flipkart was selling books; we were renting books, and we were doing more deliveries than anybody at one point in time in Bangalore. But of course, the paths eventually, you know, diverge and way where Just Books is today. Right? I keep reminiscing about those (laughs) uh, points in life. (laughs) Yeah,
1: me and my wife were among the. Sort of loyal customers of Just Books, right up until the point that they closed, and we used to regularly go to the Fraser Town one. Ah, very and, uh, nice. Used to take our little son as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, it was for It's quite sad that it uh, closed up. It was an experience that we used to really look yeah. forward to every week, and it was a great model. It's sad that it didn't take off. Take, take, take off. off. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it was ahead of its time. So I guess. It's ahead
0: of its time and some people, you know, typically think, you know, a domination of technology will also remove physical aspects. For example, people used to ask me this constant question. You're doing just books, you're marketing it. Oh, ebooks is coming, Amazon's coming, 2012, 13. I think ebooks was pretty much in the way. I had a Kindle also myself. Mm-hmm. But my answer was very simple. I think that holds even today, right? You can have e-books also. You will have physical books also. Today right? I have pretty much switched to physical for some time now. One probably because the Kindle got damaged. But I think you can switch between the two, there is no issue. It's like, you know, both will exist. Television continues to exist. Just because we have streaming services doesn't mean we have stopped watching cable television. Right? It's continuing to exist. I think there's a balance which kind of ends up. Today both are doing really well. The, The physical publishing world also is fine. The e- e-book version also is still fine. I think the same journeys you could see in my other stories also, I've seen that, you know, parallels. So, JustBooks was an amazing time where I compounded knowledge, learnt a lot of stuff, stepped out. And parallelly, I was angel investing also, Hari. That is a story. Uh, the reason I angel investing is again simply I was chasing non-linearity again. Uh, and I want to get into venture. I was also setting up slowly myself since 2008 after seeing rajesh how do i get to venture you know and that path is to do some startups understand startups become an operator i did not want to jump into venture straight away saying you know i want to invest in these companies so i angel invested first i did about five comp- five or six companies in india bunch of maybe about 15 16 companies in the us i was just learning
1: what kind of companies
0: tech companies hmm. nothing you know i l- i love retail and consumer i understand that when i say tech consumer retail consumer tech companies also i did daily ninja for example I was one of the earlier investors in Trell, uh, Cardback, a bunch of companies, you know, very early in the day. To 2013, you know, you could count the angel investors uh, by sitting in the number of table here in Bangalore. So I was trying to experiment and play that game in 2013 and that has eventually led me to uh, role at uh, Kalari uh, and that was again a phenomenal experience uh, to get uh, opening into a full-fledged uh, venture capital firm and observe what was happening there. And seeing it uh, go through that journey, right, in like four years uh, was a phenomenal learning for me again uh, at Kalari. And I think I was looking to start something on my own. That was very clear for me. So I think that journey helped me to set up what I do today. And we decided to start, like you're asking about COVID, right? We decided to start just before COVID. We didn't know COVID hitting. I decided in December that me, Karthik, Bargavi, you know, got together and said, we've known each other for long, for five years. We said, we should do this at some point. And we said, let's do this. December, we decided. And December, January, you know, China has the first wave and by February, we are all working from home. So, I mean, the options on was, you know, should we abandon starting it in COVID or continue with it, right? I, I, I think, I generally believe that once you move ahead, right, you just continue and some things would fall in place. So we said, let's go ahead. Uh, by then I had put in my papers at Calari also. And uh, by the time I quit, it was April and uh, we started this in May 2020 and we were pretty much in the middle of uh, COVID, you know, and uh, how do you raise money It was a massive challenge for us uh, because we had nothing, you know, we just had a Java website created. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we started uh, Java. Uh, Who are
1: some of your
0: earliest LPs? Uh, so, in the first fund, right, it's a pre fund, I call it. This is the second fund that I have. In the first fund, uh, uh, most of my LPs, right, were typically my uh, friends mm. and people whom I knew mm. or Bhargavi knew from her network, Karthik her network. But there's an interesting thing, right, because it was COVID, right, we started an angel investing course to teach them. You won't believe, we were surprised by the response, so we ended up teaching the course for about 10 cohorts, 180 people during covid online, weekend courses, you know, Saturday, Sunday to two hours, and a good chunk of them, you know, became our investors, I mean, that was not something we aimed for, we said, let's get some cash rolling in to fund all our experiments. And it, you had like uh, investors who were willing to, you know, learn from us and t- we were, you know, surprised and that actually ended up being a good chunk of our investors in the first fund actually. And some of them have continued to invest even into our second fund. And that was a, a turn of the fortune, uh, you know, for being brave during COVID, I feel. <laughs> day. yeah. And now I have a very stronger base of uh, LPs today. A lot of founders. Uh you know, ex-founders who got their companies acquired, like, you know, I have m 2 p founders, where is my frame founders, then 99games, a lot of founders, founders, you know, is a good chunk of my LP base. The second chunk would be CXOs from large companies like a Qualcomm or a Misho or any of these large startups, right, where there's an ESOP pool that's got uh, liquidated and those folks have been willing to support and of course I have traditional my friends and you know, a few family officers who have been part of the pool, yeah.
1: So apart from wanting to, of course, be your own masters and run your own VC firm, what did you all want to do differently at Java versus what you were doing at Kalari and other
0: places? See, uh, at Kalari also, I, I was doing you know very early stage, pre-seed, seed is what I would call. See, uh, I think you want to be a master of that is, is a clear indication for a couple of reasons, right? You want to create impact. That was something which I was very clear, right? I'll give you an example. For example, you may have a very strong conviction that, you know, X works like this or this company is good. And you want to put your skin in the game and make that call and decision, right? I think that is one real reason, you know, for me to wanting to do this, because I felt that I was in the right place at the right time. But I I needed to make those decisions, you know, for them to see real value. And Java is an expression of that for me to create that impact in the ecosystem that's one definitely wealth creation is there you know, i don't despise uh, wealth or capital You know, i think you know that's part of the process and we want to create wealth for ourselves to our investors and to the to our employees i think that's very clear wealth is part of the aim objective for us and uh, use our expertise to create that and and how did we arrive at what we do today right if you look at the first uh, fund that we did right slightly more agnostic Given that I come from a technology background, Bhargavi comes from a strong finance and a consumer background and Karthik's from whom a healthcare and an investing background just like me, he was also with Kalari. So we were open to all these three areas, consumer, deep technologies, health and FinTech. That's what we were doing in the first time. But the more and more we worked on companies, right, we realized it's better to focus on a fewer areas where people would be, you know, looking at us and it also creates our ability to, you know, right to win, you know, in some of these situations. So the second one we kind of you know figured what's going to, what's happening what's the market situation and we changed us accordingly and we focused on only two things today right or rather three sectors i would say one is deep technologies climate and sustainability and b2b and all of this underlying story is that there has to be ip here right? i mean if there is no strong ip and boats right that's deep technology for us you see an umbrella of ip and technology creation in these three areas that's where we are very very interested and that created a nice niche for ourselves. I think today, I I think, honestly, I think, you know, people look up and see, you know, how many deep tech investors are there in the country. I think we would be one of the players, you know, what people look up to at least, I think. I think that's a, I am I'm happy about that, you know, we found some uh, place and niche that, you know, people recognize for what we've done. And I think that's the story we'd continue to pursue. Mm. I want to ask you
1: more about deep tech, but, before that, can you just, for a more general audience, just give us a broad overview of uh, Java Capital through the pre-fund and the latest fund. How much money have you already? raised? How many companies have you invested in Absolutely.
0: So the first fund uh, or the pre-fund that I call it as, right, uh, is a vintage uh, 2020. Uh, we have deployed about $4 million uh, up in 23 companies. Um, and we've had about 13 up in those 23 companies. Uh, Includes the likes of AgniCool, E-Plane, Sindler, Coding L, Legistify, Warehouse. All these are uh, you know significantly uh, you know they've broken out and uh, did really well for us so far. Uh, that was the first one deployed till 2022 mid. Then we have a semi-regulated uh, second fund, which is our own vehicle now. Uh, this is what we call as uh, you know uh, Fund Two. Uh, fund Two is a ten million dollar fund. We've already deployed in uh, uh, five companies and we've also done crossover investments into well-performing companies of the fund one, from this fund, about four more companies. So technically about nine companies in this. uh, We intend to do uh, uh, about 20 companies, 15 to 20 companies, including the crossovers that we're doing. And that's largely our strategy. We should finish our deployment by mid of uh, early next year, mid to early to mid next year. That's that's the story on the fund direction. In the second fund, if you see, we've uh, done companies like um, Audit-Q, um, uh, Okilo Aerospace, Urja Energy, again, Deep Tech, B2B, and that's a strong uh, focus, uh, very clearly articulated here. Yeah. I, I want to ask you more about uh, the, the
1: Deep Tech aspect itself. Uh, just want to capture quickly the uh, roughly the dates. Uh, the second fund, uh, when did you sort
0: of formally launch it? Uh, this was launched uh, 2022. We did the first close in uh, 2022 end uh, and we've just announced the final close uh, a couple of months ago. We still open on the green shoe side. We're just closing that out. I think we'll by March, April maybe we'll wa- stop raising capital. We'll just deploy for the next uh, one and a half years.
1: Hmm. So, deep tech investing and that too in India and the examples that you gave, a lot of them are hardware deep tech companies uh, and in very difficult areas where success is, success is definitely not guaranteed. Yeah. So, can you walk us through why you want to do deep tech and then maybe you can also talk about your approach after that.
0: Now, I think why we wanted to do deep tech, right? Like, even, I was telling you that earlier, right, my first job I had spent a lot of time researching algorithms. The streak of deep tech was there in me. Two, even at my previous role, right, I was looking at deep tech and SaaS very closely, including the likes of the companies, some of them I've invested and right, I've looked at them very closely. And deep tech has an interesting other flavor apart from any other companies that it's not easy to evaluate. For every company, right, you have to spend a lot of time. But when you do that right, and that is also the satisfaction that you get of you know discovering something new. And uh, yesterday we were, we were meeting another deep technology company. They're doing something totally innovative and new. And when when when, when somebody else is doing right, I feel it's a pseudo entrepreneurship in some sense. Uh, Harry. I have tried to be an entrepreneur a couple of times. I would have not been a great one and failed once at times. I think I kind of also recognize that you know it's like if I was doing I would have done something deep tech. It it is something what I wanted to do I see in somebody else doing and I think I think there's a a pseudo entrepreneurship there lying in and that is actually for me at least personally to do deep technology companies right is like a real pseudo entrepreneurship. On your other question on about making uh, on capital that you asked right. We just looked at some data also right? globally that's available. There's not much of data to say that you know deep tech will not make money versus non-deep tech. Also there's other reasons. See when VC started in the US or Valley right, it was only deep tech. It was semiconductor companies. It was networking companies like the Cisco's of the world. So uh, I think it's only in the 90s right when the internet arrived that you know VC has become more about funding internet companies and less so about you know technology, deep technology and innovation right which is not. I think that cycle is India never was part of that deep tech cycle in the '70s, right? I think we, since we didn't do that, now I think you know we are getting there. And given all the revival of wanting to do manufacturing and being, you know, self um, there's a massive use case for starting deep tech companies, funding deep tech companies. Will we make money? I think honestly, if you ask me, I think you know there's enough opportunity. Like anybody else making money in internet economy companies, right? I think we will still make as good or better, I, because fundamentally these are changing, you know, imagine the chip companies like Intel's continue to exist, right. So the fundamental innovative companies, some of them will make, they'll become very large is my view in that way, that way I think, you know, diptech tech is not a poorer cousin from a returns point of view, I don't think so at all. I think they will make good as any other internet economy companies or even better.
1: No, my, my, my point was that uh, it's very hard. As against, and, and of course, if you succeed, you can succeed spectacularly. I mean, NVIDIA, I think, is a, now in the age of AI, a yeah. classic yeah. example. Um, so, can you talk a bit more about...
0: Uh, I'll, I'll just, yeah, I'll just add uh, why I uh, do you know, deep tech also, right? One is, there's a personal set of reasons. And the approach, right, is it's hard for others to do deep tech also. It's a barrier to an extent, you know, to understand what is going on. Uh, including sometimes you know I take time to understand so I know if somebody's not spent time in technology really right it's not easy so imagine you're being thrown into a swimming pool every time you are evaluating a company it's not uh, like in internet economy companies right at least you have a sense of was well, I've already done like a mile the next mile is I learn the third mile I'll <laughs> make it easier but in deep tech technology, it's like every time you're being put into the pool and sometimes into the ocean, right? So you you you, are, you you kind of need to develop some resistance to firstly evaluate deep tech companies. And every time you go, you should be willing to be dumb and learn and go read and learn and read. That's been the cycle. The approach is simple. Whenever I am evaluating a company, I look at it from my sense of perspective. If it's interesting to me, I go read, read YouTube, podcasts read as much as possible, in case there is a book on that sector, go buy. For example, if I am evaluating semiconductor companies, right, the first thing that I did was, even before we started evaluating semiconductor companies, I just read just for the use of it, you know, uh, bought the chip for, read a couple of other books, then spoke to two, three folks who are working in the semiconductor industry. A lot of my colleagues are continue to work in various companies. So that is a good access again. I have access to folks from my college or my friends, who are all in either a Qualcomm or an Intel or an Apple. That's a nice access to know what's really happening also. that's and I just go ask them, you know, if there's a semiconductor company here, do you think what you guys are thinking? Is there something that's happening here? That's the approach. Read, talk to a few folks in the industry, and then go to the company. Go to the company, do like, it takes easily like two to three meetings, spending with different members of a deep technology company. There'll be a CEO person, sales, then there'll be actual technology person, sit with them, go deep into the algorithms understand the workflow from customer to who the seller is do all that it, it typically takes like maybe about you know 40 to 50 hours collectively from the team to come at a decision you know do we want to go ahead or not mm-hmm. to even push that uh, story if it's mm-hmm. a very interesting company uh, that that is largely what we do and we have enough expertise that now we've developed internally as a team also Mm-hmm. And we, we go to classes, by the way, <laughs> if you give you an example, our analyst has attended a semiconductor class to understand what's happening there, right? So we are we, we are in the learning mode also parallelly, right? Like, as, you know, yesterday I spent like a couple of hours understanding the export market, the like ex- person who's doing exports. We don't understand everything or claim to understand everything. I think that's like the first thing we should do. I think in anywhere in deep tech is even more, you know, humbly you need to accept that, you know, you don't know about it. It's very hard to go deep into it. How many layers can you, can you go deep, right, and peel the onion, you will get that level of possibility. But again, it helps that I've done technology and marketing and then investing, right. I think that unique lens, right, really helps me. Three different things that I've done over five, five years, it just comes to some great use when I'm evaluating companies. Yeah, that's,
1: yeah, that's a lot of insight there. I mean, even the earlier point you made about how in the U.S., Originally, what they started with was actually what is today considered deep tech back then they probably didn't even call Call it. (laughs) I think in the 2010s, probably the word started coming up. Um, So, you, I mean, a very nice uh, description of your research process and approach. Can you take that to the next level and talk about what are some of the things that kind of need to stand out when you look at a startup, when you look at a founder? those check boxes, which allows you to
0: say, okay, I'm going to invest in this deep tech company. I think um, founders, you know, what is the reason for the founder to do that, right? I think, is he driven? There has to be some story behind, you know, somebody doing a deep tech company, Harry, You take Agnikul's founder, you know, again, in India goes to the US, does industrial engineering, then does aeronautical engineering, quits the course, writes to somebody in IIT Madras, Finds a professor here saying I want to do this, right? I think there's like a lot of persistence and tenacity. And I think that we need to identify in our founders, you know, who are trying to do deep tech. If that's not their right, I am going to be very little, you know, first, first characteristic to do that story. Then expertise, are you anyway related to that sector in some form, unlike an internet company, right, which, which is much more, you know. Uh, let's say, easier to get started on, deep tech companies are not easier, so you need to have some background or expertise in that sector or you should have your team members who know that sector or an expertise of the past. I think those two are the first criteria to look for founders and the team does it have expertise to do that. If these two are there, then you look at them. next is the idea or the problem itself. And there has to be some innovation, let's be honest about it, right? I think if there is no fundamentally new thing in deep tech, right? What's the point in deep technology there, right? You have to innovate something new, some new thing which is different. See, it could be an incremental innovation or it could be like a 10x delta, but have you at least thought on those lines is really important, right? I think we see that, right? In, if you look at Agni, you know, they had 3D printed, first of a kind, Semicryo, if you like to look at Sinler, right? They were doing a new approach to machine vision, you know, by using temporal mechanisms to detect objects, unlike, you know, typical spatial detection for objects. Uh, And if you look at uh, somebody like an Urja, right, energy, the battery pack is getting simulated. What with the state of the art, you know, using AI, ML algorithms. That way you'll know, can a thermal runaway happen. So that expertise comes because all the three founders have done that physics-based simulation for some other companies. Now to replicate that for this company with added advantages of today's AI/ML is a story there. So in every company, you'll see something fundamentally new, something that's changing the world in some sense, right? And the changing the world is, I think, is what gets me excited or the team gets excited saying, okay, here's an opportunity, the founders are trying to build something which might change the world and here's your opportunity also to be a part of that in the first place. That's a very optimistic way of looking at it. And I believe we have to look at it very, very optimistically before you say, you no, and give that benefit of doubt to the entrepreneur and founder to give a very optimistic story to you. And then you can criticize. And I think we have that mindset all the time, we keep that when we're evaluating. Founder, idea, innovation, you know, something new, these, these sorted, I think we're good there. Then we look for the usual suspects, you know, is there a competition? Somebody else is doing it. We do an IP check if required. All those processes to be done and then you know we can kind of go ahead, all these, uh, these meet them. In deep tech, again you need to spend a lot more time, that's the only story if you ask me.
1: Hmm. And in your experience, uh, of course it's still a nascent ecosystem. The early experience about what works in India, uh, what are the big challenges uh, in building a deep tech company out of India, uh, what have you found so far?
0: See, um, uh, the uh, early experience capital, right, I think now we are fairly sorted in the early stage capital, that means pre-seed, seed, almost there. Series A also, I think we've got some amount of domestic capital that's starting to come in, the new deep tech focused funds being started, this is great for the ecosystem. The missing piece of the puzzle, especially on the funding side is your B and C, right, is very hard to get, even now, right, it's hard to get. One, because I don't see, you know, uh, the, U- the Western capital, typically, that we are dependent on, you know, on the next stages, typically, I think they still think, you know, we are not so great at innovation, possibly, uh, you know, which I think we have to prove, to prove it wrong. And I think that's why that capital is still not yet fully there, but it's slowly starting to kind of come and play. I think that's one capital uh, problem. But of course, the government also saying, you know, they're going to set up a deep tech focused Uh, corpus, I think that should also hopefully, you know, reduce the pain a bit especially for series A plus kind of funding, that's on the funding side. The other problem is, to, to do deep tech, right, you need to have deep research in institutions, which could either be corporates, or academic places, Anyway, right, I think that ingraining of deep research, I think research for translation into products, which I think is a missing piece of the puzzle here in a way. If you look right, I think there are very few uh, Indian institutions which have a separate focus or have a separate place for translational research. That means great, you would be researching great ideas, publishing great number of papers in all the journals, but has it really translated on the ground to great products for the Indian population or for the global population, for all the investments that has gone into universities? I think that's the question to ask amount of translational research if you really want to do deep tech but again i mean i am optimistic here again i think iit madras research park is a classic example of you know what is possible in deep tech and i also see iisc doing a phenomenal job in the last couple of years you know pretty much you know i'm starting to see that you know i think people are thinking you know we're just not doing research we need to do research parallelly you know it has to get into some form into building products and it, it is a part of i think you know some portion of it is nation building is also i feel research translating to some really usable products i think that's starting to happen and that's not only two institutions right you know ccamp is an again massive institution that we see you know bio and health sciences being encouraged phenomenally well 2000 3000 companies i think if i'm right over the last uh, decade and a half then you have hyderabad then Pune, everywhere we have a cluster where deep technology research is happening. Translation, I think now we are doing. And I think the next decade we'll have a lot of translated that research into solid products and services globally. And this is a global platform. Deep tech is a global platform in general. It's not necessarily an in Indian play always. Yeah, we are there. Those two are getting addressed. I'm hoping the government's funding, funding. These two are the major problem. Talent is the other problem. I think that we can, again, you know, it's not like we don't have talent, right? We have like 3 lakh chip designers working for all other global companies, right? If even 5% of them and quit say, I'll do a fabulous company tomorrow morning, right? We have enough designers to do. But do we own the IPs? You know, because we are doing it for others always, right? Like even when I was working in my first company, right? I was writing... The code, which was proprietary to the global mobile uh, providers like an OK or, uh, or a Samsung, right? I was not writing, you know, I, but I, it's like our folks were writing all the stuff here pretty much. A 5G, 4G stack also was written here, an LTE stack was written here, but it was written for Haskell or Hill and not for an Indian company where we, we hold the IP. I think that has to change fundamentally. We need to hold a lot of IPs here, and that will continue to encourage investment. and Last thing to add is R&D spend, right, I think we we don't do much of an R&D spend, I think it's hardly at 1.3 or 1.5 percent, that's the range of R&D spend, including corporate and government, right, that's too, too less.
1: As a proportion of GDP
0: yeah, It's very, very low, you know, for a developing economy, we need to kind of push that up. I think a corporates also, right, talk about R&D, right, but I don't think so, they also spend a lot of money on R&D per se. I think that has to go up, uh, if you really want to continue to be uh, innovative,
1: yeah. Mm. What's next for you in terms of deep tech? I mean, through 2024, just want to double down on more investments or where do you go from here?
0: 2024 is looking very exciting. I, my, my prediction is you would uh, see a lot of non-deep tech folks starting through deep tech is my clear, open prediction. VCs, you mean? Yeah, VCs. Mm. I am saying VCs would extend themselves to doing deep tech who have not done deep tech in the past uh, decade or past 5-6 years also right will want to jump onto the deep tech bandwagon which is good so it is going to get a lot more competitive deep tech itself which is again a good sign uh, in a way uh, that is my trend at least on the deep tech uh, reading and and it is happening for two, two, three reasons I think you know one the the progress on genai and you know on the llms right mm-hmm. is created a vacuum for just funding you know you can't fund a pure saas uh, or a workflow software right so that that's like kind of got ho- held up there so you have enough capital but what is the place where you can invest where there's a physical manifestation now or a strong protection for your investment which is either an ip or a physical manifestation of the product which is a hardware so I think VCs will go towards that physical manifestation with hardware and IPs at one side of the story, or you know they'll look for consumer internet and consumer brands because that's also some physical manifestation where you know it's not LLM is not going to you know push these two out of the story. So that will continue to happen. That is a good. We'll have enough money coming towards uh, deep tech companies, and um, that I'm holding as a prediction since like last three months saying. I think 2024 is going to see a lot of deep tech investments than we've ever seen in the last half a decade uh, in 2024. And the momentum of deal making is also going up, I think, at our stage. I'm like at a, I'm doing at a frenzied pace, looks like compared to last year, right? I'm already like committed to two more term sheets and I'm pretty close to a couple more uh, in the stages. That's like just four weeks into January, I'm saying this, mm-hmm. right? Everything happened in Jan. Pretty much all this happened in Jan from the first conversation, you know, maybe a little bit in December. But I'm out there like probably doing four more deals in this first uh, quarter and I'm, I'm, I said I will finish my entire deployment next year. Maybe it'll happen even quicker is my assumption given the pace at which Deep Tech, I'm also starting to compete with a lot more players now than the past. So that also creates more necessary uh, momentum and action for all ends for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Give us a sense of which of the verticals and horizontals in deep tech that you are very excited about as a VC investor.
0: See, I think um, I call every company a sector in deep tech. That's what I call, (laughs) you know, (laughs) deep tech, right? But to get to that, still right. I think semiconductors in the fabulous, uh, you know, creating IP space. I think there's a lot of action that's coming through but uh, one is you could create replacements for what's happening in other countries. You know, that's a, still a, uh, in other companies largely, right? You're creating the same thing, but you're doing it IP is based in India. That's one way of semiconductor. There also could be other ways of doing semiconductor companies, which have some new paradigms and directions also. Those are two possible players in uh, semiconductor. And I am still very excited about what I call as, uh, internally, we call it as around EVs. Not EVs per se, but our own EVs, right? There is still some space, like Urja is a cl- example of that, um, for example, grid infrastructure for uh, uh, and how do you build intelligence on the grid infrastructure, right? Because the more EVs comes into play, right, your grid will not be stable. And when grid stability, how do you achieve, you know, and how do you achieve different times of charging, a lot of software play on the grid side will come. I feel in and around EV is what I call this as not EV per se, EV per se, I think, you know, we are done with in a way, you know, uh, high capex models. Uh, We would continue to pursue uh, space technologies still. I think there is still a lot more to be done both on the upstream and the downstream side. We will continue to look at. The other uh, area that we kind of started looking in the last, uh, I think I would say about six months from the year, is biosciences and health sciences without doing medical devices per se. Anything that requires a long FDA cycle, we don't want to do that, but anything which is uh, enabling software. Uh, accelerating what's happening in healthcare, right, I think that's, that we are keen on. So that's, we've done a couple of companies like Helium in the past, it's, it's just kidney progresses using AI imaging, but that area is something still, again, that's a f- deep technology IP play, it could be tools for diagnosis, tools for accelerating drug discovery, tools for building new discoveries of materials. I mean, today, right, you probably can put the machine to work to discover molecules quicker than ever it was possible by doing it by in a lab and a wet lab process, right. I think those are areas to really keep an eye for, uh, if you ask. And I think that that's where we are currently at least, you know, a lot of our work is in these, these areas.
1: Yeah. In semiconductor, may sound like, uh, examples that you were probably thinking about when you're talking about Fabless and building it in India. Um, companies like Incore and Mindgrow.
0: To your mind, what are the challenges that they face? No, I think uh, we've not done that before. That's going to be like the first challenge most of us are going to face. You know, once one or two of them. But we've had past some examples, like you've had Cosmic Circuits in 2007 that got acquired. We've had Insilica. In These are not known names. Insilica was a semiconductor company, IP semiconductor company. Um, We've done it. It's, it's just that, you know, we've not seen that from a VC lens so much. We've, we've done semiconductor companies, few, but we've not seen from a VC lens. So, the first time we are seeing from a VC lens, right? I think that's a challenge that presents both the VCs and the founders also. Will the semiconductor company behave in the same manner that we expect what has happened in other companies in the past? And that only time is going to give an answer to that. And for founders, also, right, because they are building semiconductor companies for the first time, right. There are not too many examples of how do I approach, how do I do things. I think that's a learning curve for all of us. Just like we learned the internet economy or the SaaS economy, right. I think we will learn the semiconductor economy in the next four or five years, and we'll get there, I feel. I think that's going to be, these are the challenges. I think we don't know yet all the pieces of the puzzle. So we will get to learn from whom already we know, and we have people. But I think that's not the problem at all. That's a great advantage, right? We have enough folks who've done either the Western world or, you know, designers in India, architects who are working for some of these large chip design companies. I think that talent is there. But when you do it for ourselves, how do you do is going to be the only challenge in some sense. And will the follow on money come again? It's a question to ask, right? But I think the policy is aligned again, given the government's policy. And that is also the reason I think, you know, I think policy is also driving some of the investment strategies of firms. Uh, we should be honest about it, right? There is a policy push if, if they're encouraging investments in Semicon, right? It means there's a nice encouragement. Then you go along with that the boat and you know play that. You know It might still work as long as it's aligned with what you're thinking. And I think that's what's happening on the Semicon side. The space side also was a classic case of that. The government's policy coming in and taking everybody higher up. I think we should also be lucky. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I think w- w- we didn't influence everybody who didn't sat, sit and influence policy, right? So, for deep tech, right? Policy is also needed, you know, directionally to see, you know, can we do this XYZ? I think the policy is currently in the right place or directionally in the right place. So, it's kind of creating that thing. So, policy is not yet challenging for anyone yet. So, it's like at least it's in the right place. And if new technologies come, and the policies come ahead or in time, right? I think that also encourages towards to what's the next new things. See, LLM, we feel like we've got left out of the wave, right? We, we should we should actually think, you know, why couldn't we be there ahead of that game in a way? We, we've been left out in some sense, right? We've been left out only. The semiconductor, we've been left out for long ago. We're just trying to make a comeback here. So in the LLM, will we be left out? I think currently we are not in the top of the game, right? Everybody has put France to the Middle East as a... A significant yeah. model that's working, but our models are still getting.
1: We need a hundred suburbs. Yeah. 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 Uh, just to stay on the semiconductor topic a little longer, what is your assessment of uh, you know, whether we will eventually succeed in having a good foundry in India, real commercial scale foundry, and, and how important is that? I mean. This is, of course, starting trouble and historically we have had lots of problems with it, but now it feels like there's something that we really need to do, is that correct? And if it happens, do you think we'll get there?
0: Look, uh, to do a state-of-the-art foundry, I don't think so, we are like anywhere near, right? Like from a technology point of view, I think nobody is going to give us all the technology. So, it's not, not, I think we are, let's, let me put it uh, in an analogical way, right? I think we are at uh, in uh, I say LKG or, like, let us say, first standard of the semiconductor possibilities that exist, right? The easiest strength that we have today, the strength we have is we have designers, we have enough knowledge about how to design a chip. We, when we talk about foundry, right, to put a state of the art foundry at like the nanometers that uh, TCMCs or anybody else is thinking, right, that requires hundreds of billions of dollars. I think today only the government can do in a way. And first, putting so much money and making sure you get everything, all the technologies that's required in one place, right? It's not easy. Because it's pretty much controlled, right? You have ASML that's controlled. There are pieces of technology which is controlled by the Western markets that's only available to a few players. So imagine if tomorrow we go and say, I, I, I have the money, can you give all the tech? Will they give is the question to ask. They may not give. So what we are getting is like very, very. Maybe we'll get to some smaller 45 nanometer or all that. We'll start somewhere there, it'll take us like a decade I think to get there. I don't think so we'll sit and we'll be able to develop everything from scratch, right? You can't develop like a lithography that's been happening for like 3-4 decades, right? Overnight you can't develop. we will have to buy and you know slowly develop other strengths which they need to depend on us. Mm -hmm. I think today that's the design. But the point is design is like easy movement, no? you can't hold on to, uh, so everybody is sitting in India and that's the strength, right? That means we should have all the IPs with ourselves and then, you know, if you can sell the IP to Apple, you sell the IP to any consumer device maker, right? Sell the IP, right? Could be the strength for us, right? Uh, but do the fab that because of strategic reasons, if you ask me, right? Just have something, you know, as a backup possibility so that others don't, it's, it's like the national strategic reasons for it to have a fab and capable of producing but if not the latest at least you know two generations before that for the strategic reasons by the time we figure it will be a decade or more for us to I, I don't know if we'll still be like getting there and i'm i'm, I'm not being very optimistic on only on that one you know our ability to get to state of art uh, foundries i have my own doubts that still is a lingering doubt but we can do the others do everything else that we are capable of in a way yeah. hmm.
1: Okay. Uh, I I wanted to pick one or two examples from your portfolio that's already there and uh, uh, just talk a bit more about it. Um, I mean, companies like ePlane and even Seingler, these are some companies that I've tracked and I know that because of, like you said, they've actually managed to break out of the initial phase of struggling with the product development and then up closer to commercialization. Certainly, Seingler is and ePlane may not be too far from it. Uh, sure. some of the others uh, Oculo Aerospace is a company I want to know more about how
0: did you stumble upon them what's the story there So Akilo is uh, bargavi my partner stumbled upon uh, Paradi the founder right uh, he's a good friend of ours from the past uh, so, so he said you know I'm building you know uh, a drone version a long endurance version so typically most of the drones that you see that's being used right they don't have a battery life of more than you know 45 minutes so you need to use it like 45 minutes then replace the battery again put it back especially that was a classic you know problem in drones except for the defense drones which have if they are fueled you know you get long endurance but still not battery powered you know battery powered drones there are very few players in a way right So getting long endurance is critical especially for defense monitoring and all those cases so when we went and met you know we saw a prototype in the office um, and uh, and this was a one-man team in a sense, when I say one-man team single founder there is a risk, typically, people talk about single founder. And he had assembled and done a phenomenal job to get the company to the stage that was already, already there. And we were the first investors, we said, you know, we will commit to that. We saw that, you know, it is a possibility that you can build a long endurance solution, which is between a satellite and a drone. Drone is like low height today. This is what we call as high altitude. Uh, vehicles or a pseudo-satellite between the satellite we said you know there's a massive gap between a satellite and the satellite you were to launch uh, once you can't repair nothing it's very hard and you put your instruments there over in this case right you can change your payload and you can get better data than that ex- you know put it on a lower altitude you will get a better higher resolution data and if you can get this to a 24 hour to 36 hour which is the goal uh, and you are in a great situation, right? You do that, and, in, and it is solar powered. That means it's getting charged as it flies. So if it gets to a stable state, right, you can leave it up there. That's the uh, long-term vision. Mm-hmm. So instead of launching a satellite, you know, to take imagery, I'll just drone, launch this drone and allow it to loiter in a particular area and take all the data that I want to capture and bring it back and change the payload again. And if there's a repair in it, I can repair it also. So, it could be a solution for, so you have large satellites and this decade has been about small satellites. Maybe, you know, that small satellite market will slowly, you know, trickle down to this kind of a solution a bit, you don't need to keep on, you know, putting all the things in the satellite. You know, this solution might, you know, become a pseudo-satellite, that's what I'm calling it as a pseudo-satellite solution. Aculo's vision is to get the pseudo-satellite play and the defense is also interested in solutions as such and then also the commercial market, especially like. Oil pipeline monitoring. A drone can go up, then come back in 45 minutes, right? If you have a longer endurance, you can just fly it along the direction of the pipeline if you are given the waypoints. That is like a clear use case. Or you can monitor your coast you know, and loiter around the coast and see if any uh, foreign ships are arriving or anything that is happening on the coastlines, right? You do not need to have personnel to monitor. You just fly this multiple of these, you know, you will keep monitoring what is happening on the coastline. So nothing goes wrong there. So use cases are immense in my view. But you need to be prepared for the cycle of, you know, getting to build a uh, long endurance which can stay there for a long time. Yeah. And that also comes with improvements in battery technology, improvement in efficiencies in solar panels. As all these adds up, right, then your ability to fly longer kind of keeps going up.
1: Where are they based?
0: They based in Bangalore. In Bangalore.
1: How old is this company?
0: This company could be about uh, three or four years. We invested this in like a year ago, I think.
1: Uh, How far away are they from the first commercial?
0: The V1 is getting uh, uh, type certified because it doesn't uh, require a new classification. It it would be classified as a drone depending Mm -hmm. on the size. So the first one is getting uh, type certified V1, V2 is in the works and a version for only the uh, defense that's also in the works parallelly so it it should have the v1 once certified you know we should see a lot more commercialization uh, uh, possibilities in the next uh, 6 to 8 months and we'll continue to develop to get to that larger vision story right that that will take uh, some more time but the ones which are already there it can continue to fly as such the v1s yeah we're not too far uh, maybe about 12 months we should see a lot of commercial options there yeah
1: mm. As we went along, I thought uh, just focusing on deep tech itself would probably make a really nice conversation. So I just kind of yeah. stayed on point on that. And I was thinking in my mind that we can come back and do separate conversations on climate tech. And you know, and, and also, of course, the whole sort of VC uh, journey aspect. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was not looking at this as a one-off. Okay, I thought Absolutely. it was a really good introduction to... What we do. What you do. That said, anything that you want to highlight in the context of this small conversation
0: before we wrap up? No, I think the only thing I've been thinking, right? So, the, this, this conviction-based investing, you might have heard, right? A uh, Lot of founders, right, need to, when they go to their investors, who are they taking money, right? They need to understand, do the investors have conviction, especially, you know, if you are doing deep tech, right? If it is only about capital, I think that everybody has access to. But do people have conviction on what they are investing in and why they are investing, right? It's sometimes missing. I think founders need to make sure that that is there in the investors also, because the journey is long, right? If, if something uh, uh, breaks uh, in the journey, a person or an investor who understands that company well, he would support it still. I think if the money or it's only been a capital play, right? I think then you're talking about very cold uh, capitalism at play. I think that's something for founders to watch out, especially because you know not everybody gets deep tech uh, easily yet. We wish, you know, if a lot more people can do this. I think that's something, you know, I would ask founders, especially who are doing deep technology and climate sustainability, to see, look, do the investors understand, you know, what are you talking, you know? Do they really care about this problem statement? Do they really care about why we are solving this, you know, is it? I think that's something that founders should evaluate before taking capital uh, from investors. That's one thought, especially for founders, yeah.
1: Another thing that came to my mind... uh, and what you were talking about about founders jog my memory about something that uh, Professor Satya had told me a few months back about how a deep tech founder may not necessarily need money for commercialization per se, mm-hmm. at least in comparison with the upfront money they'll need for product development. Whereas that is not happening yet in India to a large extent, I mean, uh, typically, VCs who probably invest at the TRL level seven onwards in India, whereas in the US, it's much more established. And of course, I mean, we know the historical reasons and all of that. Um, you spoke earlier about your approach and, and what you look for and so on. Uh, even given all of that, how do you take a call when you meet a, a deep tech founder, when all he or she has is an idea?
0: See I say you know we are starting to invest from TRL 3 onwards, TRL 3, 4 is like good for us, so that's one clear clarity, somebody says you know here's my TRL means, we are saying you know we are very happy to invest, of course you know that doesn't mean you just be on TRL 3 means I'll put my capital in it right, we want to evaluate the rest of the equations you know, see even if it's an idea right, the expertise will really matter uh, Hari, if it's an idea, we've done a couple of them like that. But in deep tech, right, I think if it's a solid, experienced founders who come from that industry and they're saying, look, this is the problem that we're willing to solve. I think we'll still be willing to listen and, you know, back sometimes. But it's always good to see, you know, you put something, at least something on the table, you know. It could be a idea to a prototype. Prototype is good enough for us. You're saying, you know, if you look at uh, any any other, some of the companies, right, like an uh, no, had just a prototype. It's not a full-fledged uh, product that we ended up uh, investing, right? So we are good with prototypes, with TRL three, four. We can we can kind of uh, look at that. You know, given that we are even pre-seed, seed that we start doing, we're willing to kind of you know take uh, a bit on those. Yeah, although we need to factor then. You know, there are chances if it's a completely new founder, like when I say first-time founder who's tackling a deep tech problem, then you know you are thinking a lot more uh TRLs, you know, a lot more uh, validation uh, because you're doing it for the first time, not from the same sector, but it's okay. But as long as you're passionate about that problem statement, right, you may still be able to crack it. It's not necessary that you need to come from a rocket factory to do a rocket, right? <laughs> you know, if you are still passionate, you demonstrate that along with some validation, you know, a little more, you know, either you are experienced and proven in the past. That's one part of the story that's working, I feel. Or you do some, you know, more validation of the product itself, which gives you an ability to raise uh, capital. I think a lot of VCs today are willing to take that bet and be that. you know, TRL 4, 5, I think people are willing to take those uh, bets. That's it for this
1: conversation. I'll be back soon with another episode of Startup Fridays. Until then, have a great Friday and a wonderful weekend. I'm Thank you for listening.